On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and crazes, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Soon we will have our one world government. My teacher says these are great for a Halloween sacrifice. <laughs> that show paved the way for all our occult programming. Grandma, oh no, my face, it's melting. Oh God, help me, help me. God has forsaken Ashley. Just because you haven't heard of chick tracks, that doesn't mean you haven't seen them, haven't thumbed through them, haven't gasped or laughed over their contents, and it certainly doesn't mean that their freaky little cartoons haven't helped to covertly construct the fantastical, hysterical America that perhaps you too grew up in. My introduction to these religious tracts, small black and white 24-page booklets no larger than a dollar bill, came when they were left as tips at the restaurant I worked at in high school. The multitude of bad kid behaviors I had participated in the night before, no doubt radiating from my wan complexion and suspiciously secular eyes. In the minds of these customers, bless their hearts, they were giving me something far more valuable than 20% or even 10% on their check. They were giving me the singular way to achieve eternal life and avoid the perpetual torture I would no doubt endure when I finally faced my faceless creator at the pearly gates. My name absent from the book of life, my sins unforgiven for good. When I thumbed through that small religious tract, I was shocked and a little delighted to find the harshest hellish damnation, the most melodramatic fire and brimstone that a zealous Baptist cartoonist could possibly scratch out. As annoying as these tips were, like so many appreciators of outsider art, of deeply parodiable morality plays, of found objects and collectible ephemera, I was hooked. And just as soon as I knew what they were, I started finding chick tracts placed at phone booths, covertly left on the magazine table at the doctor's office, piled at the classic, do you know where you're going after you die, stand at the state fair. 
I learned that this is because the whole point of chick tracts is to leave them random places so unsuspecting sinners might stumble upon them and, drawn in by the comic style, see their futures in hell, get scared shitless, and then get scared straight into Jesus's loving but viciously vengeful arms. To this day, the final pages of these tracts mercifully provide a way out of this devastating future, a step-by-step guide to accepting Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, and of course, instructions on how to buy your own chick tracts to sprinkle across the godless earth to repay this anonymous favor of total soul salvation. Jack T. Chick, the main writer and cartoonist behind these tracts, died in 2016 after a life so reclusive that only a handful of photographs of him exist and even fewer interviews. With nearly a billion of his tracts sent all over the world, even into the most remote regions, translated into more than a hundred languages, it has been speculated that Jack could be the most widely read theologian in human history. It might surprise you, then, that Jack Chick is also almost certainly the most widely read indie comic artist of all time, garnering respect, even if given with equal disdain, from other comic artists as famous as Robert Crumb. Because sometimes it seems that even more than evangelical outreach tools, chick tracks are horror comics. They're little horror movies full of monstrous vampiric demons and melting human faces, evil, hypnotic, secret societies, child sacrifices, occult ceremonies, sadomasochistic torture, and a whole variety of teeth gnashing. And, like horror movies, for a few minutes, they can sometimes twist the otherwise innocent shadows around you into frightening shapes. But like many horror movies, they can also become unintentionally campy and very easy to make fun of. In a tract close to our American hysteria hearts called The Trick, meant to be given out on Halloween, we learn that the holiday is actually an ancient secret conspiracy created by the Druids to gain children for human sacrifices to the devil. Druids who use human fat to make candles for their jack-o'-lanterns. But this tradition lives on into the very day, and every year, as we know, a bunch of children die from poisoned candy. 
In the comic, we see a modern-day witch announcing to her coven, In order to attain more blood for our master, some of you will continue planting razor blades, crushed glass, pins, etc. into the various treats. The total sacrifices will be obtained again by injecting our special poison and drugs into the treats. In the next panel, we see the witches gathered around a pentagram where they have placed all these dangerous objects, and they begin to use incantations to cast a spell upon them to control the minds of any children who survive. Chick Publications began in earnest in the late 1960s, and even though Jack passed away a few years ago, they are still open to this day. But their work was most popular during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, making Jack a major hidden architect of the Satanic Panic, Illuminati, and Gay Agenda conspiracy theories, among many other moral panics and urban legends. His influence is immeasurable, a true propagandist for a rageful Jesus whose love is anything but unconditional, one who pulls no punches when it comes to bashing political correctness. Not only did the Southern Poverty Law Center designate his tracts as hate literature, but they were also denounced again and again by religious organizations like the Christian Book Association, Christianity Today, and Cornerstone Magazine, and have at different times been banned in countries as strikingly different as Canada, South Africa, China, Iran, and Cuba. Now, I definitely encourage you to go online and check out these Chick Tracts ASAP. Almost all are available for free at chick.com. But this is a podcast, so I need to do my best to show you in words exactly what a Chick Tract is. And we're going to start with one of his less offensive classics called Bewitched, printed for the first time in 1972, with a tagline that says, Time was running out for Ashley. Drugs would soon kill her. But a praying grandmother made the difference. Our scene opens on a secret underground council of hooded demons seated around a long conference table in hell. The leader of the group sits at the head of this meeting, but before it can even begin, he announces, You must all wait until I see my favorite TV program. When I return, I want everyone's report. In the next panel, we see this leader, drawn with a human face, goatee, and cloak, who is either supposed to be the devil himself or a demon who rose to middle management, lounging in his wicked lair. He's watching TV, leaning back in a recliner that is partially on 
fire with two skulls mounted on the top. On the screen, we can see little Samantha from Bewitched flying on a broomstick through the night sky with the words, the end, above her. The devil says aloud to absolutely no one. <laughs> Delightful. So disarming. So innocent, yet so effective. A demon lackey then appears and asks why old reruns of Bewitched are so important, to which his master says, Because, stupid, that show paved the way for all our occult and vampire programming viewed by millions today. Back at the Underworld conference table, where we can assume the employees have been waiting a half hour for their boss to return from watching TV, the devil demands progress reports from each of his demons in their unique field of responsibility. The first employee reports that sales of Ouija boards are through the roof, and the next says that their drug division is a winner and has experienced no opposition whatsoever. The next demon displays a graph titled Astrology Sales, and he laughs that psychics might even start advocating for astrology in public schools. Another hooded figure with sunken eyes gestures to the seal of the United Nations and says, It's all wrapped up, Master. Soon we will have our one world government, thanks to our people in key positions. When the devil asks about the state of hell's enemies, one demon says that a few Bible-believing churches are still awake, but the majority have joined their satanic New World Order. Their devil boss seems pleased, announcing that everything is going according to plan, that their commission has everything under control. But not today, Satan. One of the demons tells him that there is a very serious trouble spot. That up on Earth, there is a grandmother who is currently fasting and praying for a teenage girl named Ashley. The devil responds, Give me a complete breakdown on Ashley. In the next panel, we see a photo of a sad-looking girl with shoulder-length hair above the words, Ashley Wilson, age 16. The PowerPoint presentation reads, Her parents divorced when she was seven. Mother died one year ago and is in hell. Ashley has been on drugs since she was 14. Ran away from home at age 15. Father an executive and an alcoholic. Then, the story flashes to Ashley's bedroom, where we see her bent over her bed in prayer beside a Raggedy Andy doll and what looks like a Furby, which would make sense because the comic was updated in the year 2000. She has a ribbon tied around her head to imply a hippie identity, and we learn that she once pretended to accept Christ because she thought she was pregnant and didn't even know who the father was. 
But once she found out it was all a false alarm, she turned from Christ, turned to drugs, and then ran away from home. But all this time, her grandma has been praying her Protestant prayers every day for her salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Back in hell, the demonic council vows to keep Ashley as their own at all costs, with a demon from the drugs department relaying that Ashley is toast anyway. She's already taken LSD 60 times and has been mixing it with speed. Her brain and arteries are beginning to gel. She's already having flashbacks. It shouldn't be too much longer. We then see Ashley enter the living room of her Manson family-looking friends, where incense burns and a crude rendering of John Lennon is tacked to the wall. She tells the guys that she is in trouble, plagued by heavy LSD flashbacks. A man who is wearing sunglasses inside with his hair tied back in a bandana drinking straight from a wine bottle suggests that she get help from her mom before realizing that her mom is dead, which he says is a bummer. She then attends a seance where the spirit of her mother appears hovering above to tell her that things will get better, that she is right where she needs to be in all this new age wisdom. So Ashley hitchhikes back home to tell her grandma the good news. But Grandma knows Satan's tricks when she sees them and tells her that that was not her real mom. That was the devil impersonating her. The next morning, we see Ashley looking in a mirror, her skin melting off her face to reveal a hollow skull. She is sweating and screaming, calling out, Grandma, oh no, my face, it's melting. Oh God, help me, help me. Beside her, an invisible demon celebrates his achievement as he watches Ashley taken away on a stretcher, her grandma begging a doctor to tell her what has happened. The doctor replies, she had a massive heart attack from an LSD flashback. I'm afraid Ashley won't make it. I'm sorry. But Grandma continues to pray as more demons surround her and taunt her. Curse God, it's his fault. Ashley's dead, and she's going to hell because you didn't lead her to Christ last night. Don't pray, it's useless. God has forsaken Ashley. Her grandma then bends over the bed, praying, Please let Ashley become conscious once more, so I can lead her to the Savior before she dies. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Suddenly, a pretty angel lady ushers all the evil spirits out of the room, while one calls out behind him, I tell you, I hate the way that woman prays. And then, 
Ashley miraculously wakes up in the hospital and, with the help of her grandmother, accepts Jesus as her Lord and personal Savior just in time because she dies 10 minutes later. On the final page, we see the failed demon chastised by the devil who promises to make him very sorry for losing Ashley to the power of the gospel. That's when you, dear reader, are presented with the same ending that all these tracts have, an opportunity for you to accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, lest you end up like Ashley as well. More after this. If you're like me, you've been shopping in the boys section for too long, and let's just say there is a limit to the quality you will find there. But just imagine upgrading your wardrobe with actual luxury essentials at unbeatable prices, like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I ordered my partner an oversized cable cardigan, and I got a Milano-stitched oversized shirt jacket. But then they were so cute and honestly nicer than anything I own, so now we are swapping them whenever I say so. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com hysteria for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash hysteria to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash hysteria. The rumors are true. I do enjoy a feel-good meal I can slip into the microwave and watch it spin, especially when that meal is personalized and delivered right to my door. With Factor, there are a whopping 35 different pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals of all kinds with the welcome addition of over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons. We're talking two-minute restaurant-quality meals, as well as smoothies and snacks and so much more to enjoy at home or on the go. Baby, we've done the math. Factor's fast, upscale, ready-to-eat meals are less expensive than takeout and a whole lot faster when you are hungry right now. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule your deliveries anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. And now back to the show. Bewitched is one of the tamer examples of the work put out by Chick Publications, but many of their tracts are far more controversial and sometimes so brutally offensive as to render them, well, cartoonish. 
As time went on, Jack started writing more and more about hot-button political issues, and his work began eliciting the kind of response that many zealous Christians dream of. Jack once wrote, quote, I'm always asking my secretary if we have received new hate messages in the mail. If he tells me there isn't, then I worry and I start thinking that maybe I'm doing something wrong. I want to shock people. I want to make them physically sick when they see this. I want them to feel the pain that Jesus suffered when he was crucified. Beloved, if no one hates you, you'd better ask the Lord if you are really in his will. And so his publishing empire became a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Print something offensive and then let the offended responses prove that you are the holy one your true piety persecuted, just as the Bible promised. So let's look at one such offensive tract that drew a lot of ire, 1989's Doomtown, a depiction of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that put a modern spin on the ancient sinful city. The comic opens on a gay rights rally where protesters are demanding that their community no longer be referred to as, excuse my language, faggots, dykes, queers, and sissies. And in order to get their way, they subtly threaten to poison the blood supply with AIDS. Then we're taken on an epic journey through the weirdest story in Genesis. First, we see two bearded men kissing graphically. One, sweating profusely, is wearing a crown on his bald head and one dangly earring. The other with a snake earring and blonde hair done up like a modern beauty queen, winged mascara and perfectly plucked brows. They look great. But behind them is a huge altar to Satan, with two robed figures chasing after an innocent child. On the next panel, we see two similar gay men kissing, with another gay man yelling at them, She's my wife, you f pervert! In the foreground, our hero, the godly Lot, hangs his head, and the Bible quote reads, Lot's righteous soul was distressed over their filthy lifestyle. Then we see a big hairy man cornering a child, and then the words, even children were not safe from their perversions. As two angels arrive in the town, Lot quickly hides them, as the beastly gays call after him. The tall one's mine! and tonight we party and ooh fresh meat then the horde of perverts surround lot's house in jack's words trying to rape the angels 
But then, to save himself, just as he does in the Bible, our apparent hero, Lot, offers up his two virgin daughters to the enormous crowd of rapists, which they deny because they are evil homosexuals. So then God just blinds the town and destroys the city, etc., etc. And then we flash back to the present day where the nice Christian at the gay rights rally says he really loves homosexuals. And that's why he's there, to save their filthy souls. And then, of course, instructions on how to be saved and how to buy chick tracts of your own. In an unfortunately familiar refrain, gays and lesbians are repeatedly represented as coercive pedophiles who cannot have children of their own, so they must recruit them to their sinful lifestyle. They're shown to have a whiny yet boastful pride problem, and dying AIDS patients are shown as haughty, vengeful villains. Every major religion has at least one tract that tears down its gods, prophets, or adherents. And if you read any Bible other than the King James Version, forget about it. If you work at a public school or university, you're definitely part of an evil agenda, especially if you teach godless evolution, something chick tracts love to debunk. If you've ever had sex out of wedlock, you have definitely contracted a plethora of STDs. And if you've ever had an abortion, you're certainly a selfish murderer. Pretty much everyone is a profound bad guy in the chick universe, hell-bound for certain. That is, unless you are washed clean by Jack Chick's simple instructions. Unless you do exactly what the mini-comic book you just found in a public bathroom stall tells you to do. Like every creator, Jack's work has its little hallmarks, its quirks. His villains constantly laugh, ha ha, H-A-W-H-A-W. When a person chooses not to believe in his message and is headed for unending torture, the language he uses is, somebody goofed. All his characters' curse words are represented in the classic comic book style by a series of symbols, exclamation points, and stars, the reader's dirty mind left to fill in the blank. The very existence of the implication of curse words was enough to cause little scandals among the most buttoned-up Christians. But you see, Jack, at heart, wasn't really like them. He was a zealot, of course, but he was also, despite the messages we loathe, a radical artist out on the fringe. And he once said in a rare interview, quote, those Christians always trying to tell me what to do. You know, I'd rather hang out with bikers. 
in defense of writing so righteously, Jack Chick often fell back on the idea that it takes one to know one. Because before he created Chick Publications, he claims he was a sinner too, unaware of the eternal consequences of his sinning. Most of Jack's personal history has to be pulled from the 2017 book You Don't Know Jack, published a year after his death, the only authorized biography in existence, in which he shared the details of his life with his successor, David W. Daniels. In the book, we learn that Jack was an aspiring actor in high school, part of the drama club and the wardrobe crew, as well as an award-winning comedic speaker who received a scholarship to the Pasadena Playhouse School of Theater, setting his sights on becoming an actor in Hollywood. But just after he arrived, he received a letter congratulating him on being drafted into the middle of World War II. Starting as a private in 1943, he would be trained as a cryptographer, tasked with using encryption to pass around sensitive information without interception by enemy forces. He would spend the next three years traveling between different countries occupied by the Japanese army, where this bad boy says he was not only using swear words, but smoking cigarettes Two. When he returned from the war, he met a young woman named Lola Lynn at the Pasadena Playhouse, where he attempted to pick up the life he left off three years before. It was now 1946, and the new lovebirds shared a dream of a future in Hollywood together. Lola Lynn came from a very conservative, very Christian family and continuously tried to warn her wayward Jack of the hell that awaited him. But I gotta admit, Jack Chick was pretty cute, so I suppose that helped her forgive his impiety. After they married, they traveled to Canada to see Lola's parents during their honeymoon. And when they met the mildly foul-mouthed, cigarette-smoking ex-soldier, they asked Lola, What in the world did you marry? It was her mother Myrtle who took Jack by his figurative ear and pulled him into their living room, where the radio was playing the booming voice of Charles E. Fuller, a massively famous preacher and star of the old-fashioned revival hour. That's when Jack heard the words that would change everything about his life forever. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Later that night, after everyone was in bed, Jack staggered into the kitchen, those words melting through his crimson veins like cold white snow. And he got on his knees on the hard linoleum and asked Jesus Christ to save his eternal soul. 
Immediately, he felt a profound change occur inside of him. Everything started to align. By the time Lola and Jack returned back to their old lives in Los Angeles, he was a true believer, and he was never going to let Lola or himself anywhere near the hell of Hollywood. This new Jack wanted to do something big for the Lord, but he was too shy to be a preacher, and he didn't yet realize what his God-given artistic talents could be used for. So for many years, he drew other comics, comics about the silly lives of cavemen, long before the Flintstones or the BC comic strips made their debut. But by 1960, he was working as a technical illustrator for the Astro Science Corporation. And while sitting in his car on his lunch break, reading the fiery 1800s sermons of second grade awakening celebrity preacher Charles Finney, Jack realized suddenly that the Christianity he saw around him was dead in the water. It was milk toast. It was boring and dry and would never inspire the next great awakening that America and the world at large so desperately needed. So he authored and illustrated his very first tiny comic book called why no revival? But every Christian publisher he went to flat out rejected him. Still, Jack was determined to get his message to the masses, so he took out a loan of just $800 from his employer and started what would become a modest publishing empire, located, of all places, right outside Los Angeles, where he would live his entire life writing and illustrating dozens and dozens of biblical tracts. But if you start looking at enough chick tracts, you will eventually notice that there are two distinct styles of cartoons. Jack's style, which is pen-scratched and simple, like newspaper comic strips, and another that shows a marked skill closer to the dramatic realism of superhero comics. Ultimately, this mysterious second artist would be responsible for around half of all the visual art produced by Chick Publications. In the early 1970s, Fred Carter was 33 years old and had just dropped out of art school. He'd been working odd jobs here and there when a friend at church handed him something he had found in Chicago, a little paper booklet most likely titled This Was Your Life or A Demon's Nightmare, the most widely read of Jack's early tracts. Fred had never seen anything like it, saying in a rare interview, quote, I had always wanted to use art in a Christian setting. I saw it and it impressed me because that's what I always wanted to do. 
Fred immediately sent Jack a letter all the way to California, and in it he included examples of his work. Soon after, Fred would be invited to move his entire life to an unremarkable building outside of L.A., where he would become the first and only black man among the staff of 19 at Chick Publications. Though Jack always wrote the comics himself, he was impressed with the obvious brilliance of Fred Carter, and they teamed up to create what was likely Fred's very first tract, 1972's The Last Generation. Here we go again. Our story starts off in the World Court Headquarters in Rome, where the Supreme Justice announces, It is the decision of this court. Anyone who claims that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father in heaven shall be committed to a mental camp for treatment and or be executed. All who oppose this new law are officially enemies of the state. A woman named Connie and her husband Charles are watching this address on a television in their living room, and they ask their very Christian father what it all means. He tells them, Connie, one way or another, we may be moving into our mansions in heaven soon. We have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Persecution, new killer diseases, earthquakes, and wars all over. This could be the last generation. Right then, Charles and Connie's son returns home from the bowels of his secular school. Knock, knock, Bobby, the knockoff Hitler youth, is here and ready to forsake the fuck out of his Christian family, saying without any prompting, the kids call me slime because my parents are straight and still married. When asked what he learned in school that day, little Bobby holds up two photos, one bearing the face of a kitten with a ball of yarn and the other a happy spaniel puppy. My teacher says these are great for a Halloween sacrifice. Then he tells them that the next day, his school is bringing in a New Age healer to teach them about the Mother Goddess, and they will be instructed on how to find and turn in heretics. When the distraught family tells Bobby it's time to go to bed, he shouts at them, Larry's mom said that to him, and now she's in a concentration camp for child abuse. Want to join her? For the next few panels, Bobby's father and grandfather talk about the upcoming seven-year tribulation that comes complete with a satanic one-world religion antichrist dictator. Back in his classroom, Bobby and the other public school knockoff Hitler youth are introduced to the famous New Age healer, who is dressed in a superhero costume that comes to a suspiciously KKK-esque point at the top of his head. 
he tells the kids that together they will be hunting for sickos who hate the Blessed Mother Goddess, offering the kids a great big reward for turning in Christians for rehabilitation. When he arrives home after school and confronts his grandfather, who refuses to renounce Jesus, betrayer Bobby takes off to tattletale his pious birth family to death. In the next panel, we see the grandfather being tortured in a chamber labeled mental health, while they implant a chip in his brain but still he will not recant his faith. Bobby's Christian mother and father attempt to escape to a remote mountain cabin, but Connie's own brother vows to turn them in for a reward that appears to be free drugs, according to the sign in the reporting office. With Charles and Connie's mountain hideout compromised, down swoops the New World Order helicopter and the New Age healer man super anti-hero himself, screaming to his fellow secular soldiers, Shoot to kill! But just then, a miracle occurs. The rapture, 2,000 years in the making, finally arrives, and the Blessed Ones disappear, leaving their clothes behind in piles. The final statement reads, Little Bobby died in his sins because he never prayed a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. Please come into my heart. I trust you as my personal Savior. Amen. Don't be fooled like Bobby. More after this. And now, back to the show. Jack T. Chick may be one of a kind, that's for sure, but he does have what I would consider a spiritual predecessor. Mason Locke Weems, or Pastor Weems, was writing his own brutal religious tracts in the early 1800s, complete with freaky images from woodcut engravings, all about the horrific fate awaiting those who do not follow the laws of God. In a pamphlet called The Drunkard's Looking Glass, one man sexually assaults his sister, murders his father, and then commits suicide, while other alcoholics die unconscious in their own puke. One such drunk is shown in an engraving getting smacked off his horse by a thick branch, and Pastor Weems describes the aftermath of this accident thusly. The man had, quote, no sign of a nose remaining on his face. With the branch. Completely scalping the right side of his face and head. His eye cleanly knocked out of its socket and held only by a string of skin. There it lay naked on his bloody cheek. 
In another tract called The Devil in Petticoats, we learn about how God takes his revenge on murderers by showing images of the sinning body's destruction, complete with broken skulls and mangled corpses with swollen tongues. Just like Jack's, every tract ended with a very special lesson, like the one where a man murders his wife by knocking her out of a rowboat with an oar, and as she is drowning, she says, Oh, hear my counsel, shun as you would a demon the man who scorns religion, our helpless sex's only guardian, whose divine power alone exalts a husband's soul. Or the one where a woman is shown, frozen in the moment before she sinks an axe into the skull of her sleeping husband. The final warning being, O young men and young women, draw nigh. From this bloody bed, come learn that lesson which pulpits so often have preached in vain. Learn at this scene of death the worth of religion. The American Tract Society was founded the year of Pastor Weems' death in 1925 in New York City, and they were the earliest official passer-outers of inexpensive evangelical literature. Each booklet contained what they said was, quote, instruction important and weighty enough for the sage and yet simple enough to be accommodated to the taste and intelligence of a child. This was certainly Jack Chick's philosophy as well, as he once wrote, quote, nobody can resist cartoons, and once they are hooked, each tract delivers a simple gospel message anyone can understand. In a book called Selling God, American Religion in the Marketplace of Culture, author R. Lawrence Moore calls this phenomenon moral sensationalism and also moral pornography. What Pastor Weems knew in the early days of the printing press was what all members of the media now know, Sex and gore is the fastest way to get a person's attention. In fact, in a letter that Weems wrote to his editor, he vowed to blend amusement with instruction in order to make religion more interesting than the thousands of puritanical books that he said were weighing him down. Jack Chick would learn 200 years later what Pastor Weems knew then, that gore sells God. As Jack and Fred Carter's relationship continued to develop, they began a larger project than just these tiny black and white tracts, and together they produced full-sized, full-color comic books throughout the 1970s and 80s called the Crusader series, all written by Jack and all with illustrations done in Fred's superhero style. But there was something else special about this project. The two main characters were based on Jack and Fred, but they were rendered as sorry boys, Full-on, hyper-masculine, mouth-watering beefcakes. In the first issue, Tim Clark, 
aka Jack Chick, is described as a 21-year-old former Green Beret, a man who speaks eight languages and was once dropped behind enemy lines on a secret mission. The other is Jim Carter, aka Fred Carter, a former leader of a narcotics ring, an expert street fighter trained as a black militant who holds a black belt in karate. In the second comic of the series, 1974's The Broken Cross, we meet Donna, a scantily clad hitchhiker who is taken to the road because her fundamentalist family has been shoving religion down her throat. She's picked up by a group of seemingly trustworthy hippies, but as is usually the case when it comes to hippies, they kidnap her and perform a typical blood sacrifice while dressed in their gothic robes. As our heroes begin poking around for clues, they quickly find out that everyone from the police chief to the town's pastor, from the kitchen staff of a restaurant to the kindly old local librarian, are in on the demonic plot, as told by the illustrations of their evil little smirks. They all denied the existence of local Satanists, often mocking the men for their silly ideas, while all secretly conspiring together to cover up the growing town coven. Later, Jim and Tim are driving in the pouring rain, and they almost hit a haggard, crazed man who they discover is eating a human finger. They pick him up and take him to the police station, where they finally find a singular sane resident, one who has suspected cult activity for some time now, a local cop named Officer Bradley. Later that night, in the hotel room they are sharing, Tim, a.k.a. Jack, explains to Jim, a.k.a. Fred, the biblical story of Lucifer and the development of his demonic minions, all while Jim undresses to reveal a super sexy ripped body, pecs and abs rippling under a dusting of dark chest hair. The next morning, in just such a deeply homoerotic scene, ironically reminiscent of gay illustrations by Tom of Finland, Jim sits up in the hotel bed, shirtless, as Tim says, for some reason, good morning, bright eyes. His own biceps almost ripping through his green turtleneck. Then, beside the bed, they get on their knees and pray. Then later, while eating breakfast at a diner, they meet a teenage girl named Jody who is wearing a pentagram necklace. They inquire about the unique piece, which Jody thinks is quite far out, and they ask her if she knows any more teenagers who are witches just like her. She responds, only about 80% of my school, 
And then, through simply explaining why Satan is bad and Jesus is good, they successfully convert her to Christianity. But just as Jim and Tim turn their backs, she too is kidnapped. They find her pentagram necklace on the floor of the diner, and then Black Belt Jim beats the shit out of the cook who they believed delivered her back to the cult. Somehow, they track down the witches, and just as they're about to sacrifice Jody to Satan, the Crusaders sick the power of Christ upon them, causing one Satanist to puke a bunch and the others to cower, while Jody is carried out, limp in the jacked arms of Jim, the coven finally arrested by the only good cop in town, the appropriately God-fearing Officer Bradley. <sighs> crazy story, right? According to Jack, so crazy, it just might be true. Because if we turn back to the very first page of The Broken Cross, we can see a dedication written in Jack's handwriting. Quote, My deepest appreciation to John Todd ex-Grand Druid Priest, for the authenticity of the occult information used in this story. Also to those who came out of witchcraft and have verified this material. So now that we have gotten intimately acquainted with the dark and ridiculous world of Chick publications, our next episode in the series will cover the handful of experts who made Jack's work what it was, the men and women whose life stories lent his comics an air of authenticity. Along with an ex-grand druid priest who taught Jack all about his experience with witch cults and the Illuminati, we'll also meet Alberto Rivera, the man who revealed to Jack the grand conspiracy of all conspiracies led by the Catholic Church, and Dr. Rebecca Brown, who told Jack all about the satanic witches and demons that had infiltrated her hospital, and her anonymous friend Elaine, who actually married Satan himself. Make sure you stay tuned for part two and part three, because this moral sensationalism, this moral pornography, is only going to get hotter the closer we get to the heart of all this hell. This was American Hysteria. If you want to get ad-free early episodes as well as bonus content, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You'll get access to our other podcast, a talk show where producer Miranda and I tell you the stories from the topic's cutting room floor. Not only that, but you'll also be added to our close friends Instagram, where you can follow the strange and frantic and funny journey of making each episode. And you can offer up your ideas as well. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. 
And no, you'll also be supporting our show. Another great way to support our show is to leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Our sound design is by Clear Como Studios. Our research assistant is Riley Swadelius Smith. Our co-producer is Miranda Zickler. And let's hear it for our voice actor, Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And keep your eyes open, because now that you know about them, you might find a chick tracked left in an unlikely place for someone just like you. Have a great day.